0: This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching to the Gospel of Matthew, and we're beginning our dive into chapter 6, which is a continuation of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is talking about many of the practical parts of the Christian life, the day-to-day behavior of citizens of the kingdom of God. At this point, Jesus is resetting the standards for giving. Once again, Jesus points to the heart of the matter, very literally our spiritual heart. He's not concerned about the amount of our giving as much as the reason for it. Are we giving for attention or giving because we love God and want to reflect his provision and generosity? We'll see why that's important as we continue this message from last week. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's jump right into the rest of today's message from Pastor Pierre. Are you
1: interested in earthly rewards or in heavenly rewards? Are you interested in heavenly accolades or earthly success? Are you after the admiration of people or the approval of your Father who is in heaven and sees everything in secret? That's the point. So he gives now two negative commands. And how do we know they are commands? Because he uses the imperative verb here. Remember, imperative verbs are not suggestion. They are commands. So he opens everything up by saying, so when you give to the poor, he says that in verse 2. And again, when you give to the poor in verse 3. So remember, Bible Interpretation 101, if you have repetition in the same paragraph Highlight them because it means that this is something very important that God wants us to remember. And we will see a lot of those in the next 18 verses. For example, let me just give you an example. The word hypocrite appears at least three times in these 18 verses. So, what we need to learn then is that God wants us to avoid hypocrisy. Also, in verse 4, for example, he says, The father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, you go to verse 6, which is not what we're going to cover today. But he says the same thing, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Then you go again in verse 18, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So church, what does that mean? It means that Jesus wants us to know that the father has rewards for us and he sees what is done in secret. So that's important for us to understand. Furthermore, let me give you another example. In verse 2, they have their reward in full. Now, when you go down to verse 5, they have their reward in full. Same words. And then in verse 16, they have their reward in full. So that contrast between earthly rewards and heavenly rewards is very abundant here in at least the first 18 verses. And so we can't ignore this. God wants us to know the difference between accolades from men, the applause of people versus the crowns, the rewards that God has for us. And we need to therefore make a choice. What is important for us then? What are we after? Well, God says, what is important is this. If you are after the admiration of people, yeah, your reward is in full. That's what you're going to get. And people die for that. And, and, And if we're not careful, we will do the same. We will die. We will sacrifice our families for the rewards of people. But we don't live like that. So Jesus gives us two negative commands. The first of which clarifies the inferiority of earthly rewards. Jesus talks to his audience about a common practice at the time. Again, we need to understand the context here. It was condemnable in the eyes of God. And he uses the word hypocrite. And that word made its way in the English language by a transliteration. Let me explain the difference between a translation and a transliteration, okay? A translation is when you find a word in the receptive language, the language in which you are translating the original language. Translation is when you find a word or two that are equivalent, to the original word. A transliteration is when you don't find one and you therefore make that word that is in the original and you make that word sound in the receptive language like the original. So a hypocrite is someone who was an actor in the days of Christ. A hypocrite was not initially, the, the, the connotation of that word is not negative. It was just a profession. He's referring to people who originally had the profession of acting out in front of people. See the context of theatrics and they would wear a mask. The mask that would cover all their faces to hide the identity of the actor so that it would be clear to the audience that that one actor or actress is representing someone else. Now, with time, that word began to be ascribed to people who were pretending to be someone they are not. Now, we understand that word exactly in the way that Jesus' audience would have understood that word in the Sermon on the Mount. Hypocrites are people who pretend to be someone they are not. So Jesus says in verse 2, when you give, don't be a hypocrite, don't be an actor, don't do like those guys do. And he's referring to the scribes and the Pharisees, because remember, they're the ones that have bad theology, and now that bad theology translates into bad righteousness, which is not righteousness at all. It's phoniness, it's hypocrisy. And Jesus is saying, don't do that, don't try to be someone you're not. Now, and evidently, they would sound trumpets. These theatrical professional religionists, they would sound the trumpet or have someone else do it for them in the streets and in the synagogues to announce their deed to let everybody know the great benefactor has arrived. And the local beggars, therefore, would line up and that commotion and the noise would announce to the local beggars that their great benefactor, the holier people, are here to benefit you and for everybody else. The commotion drew attention to the supposed kind-hearted, holy men. But Jesus Christ tears that down. He breaks that facade and he says, that is a fabrication. You are not to do it like that because God looks at the heart. And therefore, Jesus indicts their phoniness. Now, let's bring it home. We don't do it like that today. We don't blow trumpets literally to announce our generosity. But proverbially, we toot our own horn, do we not? And for the sake of honesty, we need to admit that we do keep score of our benevolence and secretly hope that someone will recognize our great benefit to humanity. Now, we're not like the hypocrites here. We're not like these actors, but we have just modernized our acting skills today. We may not stage this scene for a giving act. We don't blow the horn. But if we're not careful, we put on a show and God sees it right through. So see if any of these practices convicts your heart. I'm going to suggest some here. If they convict your heart, I want you to think clearly and ask God to transform your heart so that you were practicing our righteousness, not for the show, not for theatrics, not for hypocrisy, but for the benefit of people, obviously, but for the pleasure of our Father who is in heaven, who sees what's done in secret. So let me ask you a few questions. First one is, do you expect anything in return from people when you give? Let's say the VIP seat at the annual conference of the organization you support. Do you get disappointed when you don't get the supporter of the year award or plaque? And here's one that really convicts all of us. How do you react when you don't even get a thank you from the people you give, whether time, money, or the benefit of your service, whatever? How do you react when you don't even get a thank you? Are you doing it for people or are you doing it for God? Because the Bible says, whether we eat or drink or anything else we do, we do it for the honor of God. The Bible says, for his glory and for his renown, not for our own. And the problem that Jesus identifies is, if we're not careful, we will let our proud hearts dictate our actions and God sees right through. So according to Christ, the religious actor gets nothing more than a brief moment of glory a brief moment of words of affirmation, they get a piece of paper or a plaque that hangs on a wall to accumulate dust and spider webs. And when someone else puts on a more impressive display of religiosity, a a better act, a better show, you fall into forgetfulness unless and until you produce a better act. You see, that's a cycle that is unhealthy and exhausting because that's not what God expects from us he doesn't expect us to keep doing those acts so that we may be seen by men obviously he's talking specifically about our giving here and that's what we're going to stick with because we don't want to get on a tangent here and talking about many other things but when your heart is right that's the principle when our heart is in the right place we will receive rewards from him and we will do things for the honor of God without concern about how criticized we're going to be and that's the point because that goes the other way too We don't do it for the applause of people. We don't do it for the approval of people. So even for the criticism of people, if our heart is right, anything we do, we do it for the glory of God. Whether we give $5 or $5,000 is irrelevant. God knows our generosity or whether we give up our time, whether we give up of our energy to bless someone else. God sees the heart and he rewards what's done in secret. He says, but... Look at the second negative command that he gives, and he contrasts the inferiority of earthly rewards with now the superiority of heavenly rewards. The superiority of heavenly rewards, verses 3 through 4. And he uses another figure of speech, and by now you've realized Jesus is a master of use of figure of speech. In the Sermon on the Mount here, and in every one of his other discourses, he uses a lot of proverbial language or parabolic language to make a point. But before we even look at the point, let's just say God is the author of beauty, and that is literary beauty here when he uses figures of speech. And he's done already some of those in chapter 5, but he's the creator of beauty and order. He's a literary master. He is the master wordsmith. So what he means by the left hand or the right hand, with all of that is this, is proverbially informing one's left hand symbolizes the trumpet in the previous verse. The same thing. It's a restatement of the same principle, but now in figurative language. He's condemning a practice that they did, and now he's using a figure of speech, proverbial language to make a point. And his point is to contrast earthly rewards with heavenly rewards. And because notifying each hand symbolizes or accomplishes the same outcome that a trumpet would do to keep track, to keep records of your giving for the purpose of hoping that someone would honor your great benefit to humanity. And according to Jesus, such an attitude of the heart reveals phony righteousness. He provides a better option in the next verse here. He says this, When you do it, do it in secret. Verse 3, when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret. Now, he may be referring to the chamber of secrets in the temple of Jerusalem. We're not entirely sure, but he may be referring to that, where according to Jewish tradition, people will drop in their benevolent gift anonymously. And that illustrates the point that quiet generosity is the goal for all of us who are subjects of the kingdom of heaven. Quiet generosity. That is spiritual virtue at the highest level. And it demands such an action because it pleases the one who sees in secret and who gives heavenly rewards, infinitely superior than earthly recompense. Oh, and by the way, such an act here, giving in secret, also honors the attributes of God, namely omnipresence and omniscience. Because whenever we give, God is there already. He knows how much we're giving. And again, that's not the point. The point is in our hearts. He knows the amount But that's not as important as the attitude of the heart because he's the omniscient one. Let me give you an example of an approach that is the opposite of the one that Jesus teaches here. Years ago, a man came up to me after the Sunday church service. He took a deep breath to state his case to me. He said, Pastor, I put in $700 today in the offering plate. I looked at him and said, that's good, but I don't really need to know the amount. In fact, I, don't, I stay completely out of the budget. I, I don't need to know. And he said, no, oh, no, 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 Pastor. That's not the point. I want you to know because I am expecting God to give me 7000 back. So I'm tithing in reverse. <laughs> I didn't say anything to him at the time. It was during the handshaking. But the only thing in reverse that day was his thinking. I don't think he got his $7,000 back because God probably saw what's in the heart. Uh, That's precisely the opposite of the divine standard. Now, let me give you a biblical example that happened 2,000 years ago when it comes to this sort of reverse thinking and generosity. You may have heard of a couple called Ananias and Sapphira, likely inspired by Barnabas and the generosity of Barnabas. This couple sold a piece of property and gave part of the proceeds as a love offering to the recently inaugurated church. So far, so good. But the problem is they lied to the apostles and they said that the donation was the total sales price. They wanted to impress people. That was the problem. See, the problem wasn't of giving anything to to the church. They could have given nothing and God would still have been pleased with them if the heart is in the right place. But Luke tells us what happened next. And this is a longer passage. So let me read this Acts 5 verses 1 through 11 to you. Luke says, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. As he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And a great fear came over all who heard it. The young man got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came and found her dead, and they carried her away and buried her beside her husband. And a great fear came over all those in the church, over all who heard these things. Acts 5 verses 1 through 11. See, let me clarify a few things here. Their reward, the reward of this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, is not what they're expecting. They expected to be announced as the great benefactors of the early church because they sold their property and gave 100% of the proceeds to the church. Now, we don't know the price of the property here. That's on purpose. Why? Because that's not relevant, that's not the issue. That's not the problem. And Peter is very clear about that. And this was very necessary in the early church so that the church could understand the seriousness of the matter. The fact that God doesn't do it today is only because of his grace. And we should celebrate that, that nobody falls dead when we commit acts of hypocrisy. Now, the point here is that they could have kept the property. They were not under any obligation to sell anything. In fact, the Bible says in the previous chapter that Barnabas and some other folks did the same. So the problem wasn't even knowing that they did that. Because Luke obviously knew what Barnabas and some of the other people were doing. So the problem was not notifying people that they were doing that. The problem was their proud heart. They could have kept the property and there wouldn't have been any problem. They could have sold the property and given half of the proceeds to the church and said, this is half of the proceeds. Or they could have given 10% or they could have given 1% or they could have given nothing and they would still be okay in the eyes of God. Because Peter said, wasn't it yours to keep? Nobody forced you to do anything. The problem is when they lied to the church, to the apostles in this case, in order to be seen as the great benefactors, in order to be seen as the great givers of the early church. See, the sin of that couple was pride, which led them to lying to the church, to embellish their generosity, to impress people precisely What Jesus says here, we are not to do. So that is a perfect example here. Now, again, don't get confused here. The the amount of money is not relevant in the eyes of God here. The problem is their proud heart. They were not commended to sell their properties. This was all a volunteer thing. And this was not communism because this was not government mandated. Don't confuse the two. People were selling their stuff, according to Acts 4, especially towards the end of that chapter, because they wanted to. Because God placed in their hearts to give to the poor, to assist the people in need and to support the work of the ministry. Here, the apostles so that they can focus on the ministry of the Word of God. However, the problem was they lied to the Holy Spirit to embellish their generosity. And God says, I will have none of that. Now, they fell dead, both of them. But they probably went to heaven if they are true. They were truly converted. They're truly believers. They went to heaven, but they missed out on rev- heavenly rewards. See, they wanted the reward of uh, an applause of people, of receiving accolades from people. And the words of Christ are, are true here. You have your reward in full. Or in that case, not what they're expecting because they fell dead. They received a sharp rebuke from the apostle and then they fell dead. And they serve as an example for us, a negative example. Of what we're not supposed to do, of what God does not expect from His church. But in verse 4, He concludes, The Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So He concludes, Jesus concludes this paragraph by talking about heavenly rewards. So we want to follow His lead and conclude the same way today. Let's identify some tangible heavenly recompense here, infinitely better than earthly perks, so that we can fix our eyes, again, on the inheritance that we will receive, that God is reserving for us in heaven, one that is undefiled and will not perish and will not fade away because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, he says this, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him, Talking about the Father. For we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So that is the judgment seat of Christ that Paul refers to, or also known as the Bema seat, because of the platform where the judges in the ancient Olympic Games would reward the competitors. So Paul is using that illustration to say, we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this is not a judgment on whether or not we're going to make it to heaven. He's addressing believers here. This is already in heaven. The fact that believers will be rewarded for our faithfulness according to how we served him here. Some are going to receive more. Others are going to receive less. That's what he says, whether good or bad. In other words, whether profitable or not profitable for kingdom purposes or heavenly purposes, whether or not God sees them well or not, we're going to be receive rewards. And we also know that Christ promised in Revelation 2 verse 26 that he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. So we know a couple of things. Believers are going to receive rewards from Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. That's future. That's in heaven when we get there. Secondly, we know that we will receive authority over the nations. In Revelation 2, verse 26, specifically during the millennium, and according to several passages in the New Testament, crowns will serve as tokens of that authority. Now, somebody has asked me this before, and I'll say it again. I don't think we will walk around balancing crowns on our heads in heaven. Because of the vision we have in the book of Revelation of the elders casting their crowns at the feet of Christ as a symbolic way of saying this is all because of you anyway. So I don't think we're going to be walking around in heaven or in the millennium balancing crowns on our heads except perhaps when we are presiding over court sessions. Much like a judge wears a toga today when he is or she is presiding over court sessions. And the reason I say this. Is because 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 and 3, Paul says this, that believers will judge the world. So if you are a believer in Christ, subject of the kingdom of heaven, you are a deputy judge who Christ is going to recruit and give you authority over the nations to judge the world after his second coming. And he will assign jurisdiction to believers in Christ, each member of the kingdom of heaven, in a resurrected state according to our faithfulness because we will be a kingdom of priests. We will serve as priests also, according to Revelation 5, verse 10. And as deputy judges slash kingdom of priests, we will uphold and enforce God's law in the millennium. Revelation 20, verses 4, and 6. You see, we have a lot to do in the afterlife. Don't let anybody tell you that heaven is a boring place. No, it's not, because we are going to judge the world. We're going to be a kingdom of priests, and under the authority of Christ, we will, as deputy judges, we will judge the world in the millennium because there will be people born during that time, with a sinful nature that will need to be governed, okay? Now talk about a perfect society where justice and peace reigns. We will thrive in this task because, first of all, we're not going to have a sinful nature, so we're not going to be biased about anything. Our only goal in life is not going to be self-aggrandizement, but our only goal will be to uphold and enforce God's law in the millennium for His honor and for His glory. Furthermore, Satan will be bound during the millennium. Remember that. So he's not going to influence the nations. So talk about a perfect society here. Just you wait. If you're reading the news and you're discouraged by what you see, I hope that that causes you to look at the future. If you're a believer in Christ, you will live in a perfect society under the theocracy, the millennial kingdom of Christ. Now, again, the point that Jesus makes in verse 4 is this. If you can't really uphold His standard of righteousness now, why would He, on behalf of the Father, give you jurisdiction over many cities in the millennium? So church, we should practice non-hypocritical righteousness, this standard of righteousness here that is elevated, that spiritual virtue at the highest level, at the level of excellence, and not the substandard. We should practice that in training for what we're going to be doing for the rest of eternity. Now, some will judge more than others. Some will receive more rewards than others according to our faithfulness. But again, we will thrive. We can conclude by the last sentence here of crisis. There is no position of authority given to us here on earth that can even match this, even compare to this. We're going to talk about those tokens of reward that we're going to receive, our crowns. But for now, we're just going to remember this. The only reason we are going to receive crowns of reward. is because Christ wore a crown of thorns on your behalf and on mine. He was condemned so that we would be honored in the future. Nothing compares to this. So you see the foolishness of wanting the applause of men. You already have the applause of the Father because you are in Christ, not because of your performance, but because of his great love for you. He placed you in a position of honor, in a position of blessing. You already have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Therefore, the applause of people mean little. Of course, God uses people to encourage us and affirm us, and we welcome that. But we need to understand that what we're really after is the rewards from our Father who is in heaven, because that's the one that really counts. So for now, we're just going to close by echoing the heavenly ensemble. In the book of Revelation, when they say in Revelation 5, verse 12, power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing belong to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the relevance of the Word of God, Lord, and the fact that you make it very clear as to the kind of righteousness, practical righteousness you expect from us subjects of the kingdom of heaven. Father, teach us to give generously, teach us to give genuinely like your word says here, Lord, not to impress people, not to want to buy influence, but to honor you, Lord, because you are the one who rewards according to your standard, according to your purity and goodness, Lord, and that's what we're after. Our goal in life is to make disciples of Christ, Lord, and we we, we consider that a great honor, Lord, and a great privilege. And we want to honor you by doing this well and with excellence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. We're always looking for people just like you to join us in spreading the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.